It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. So we're going to get right into it. You may have seen City and State about a week ago, the magazine that covers city and state politics, getting into the whole hunger games of casinos. So there's a very complicated story, and we have two great reporters to break it down for us, to make it understandable. And they were featured, they wrote features for this issue. Annie McDonough, welcome. You're a staff reporter for City and State. Yes, thanks for having me. And Justin Sondell, who is a freelance reporter, writes for City and State, Washington Post, and other news outlets. First of all, you know, there are about 12 entities, some with more enthusiasm than others, vying for three downstate casinos. And this could likely be, these casinos could be the most profitable casinos on earth. People think that they could generate about $2 billion a year in revenue with about $6 million a year in operating profit. And you look at what happened with mobile sports betting when that was allowed last year. With just nine operators in one year, $16 billion were wagered here in New York State on mobile sports betting. $709 million generated in taxes, which is much more than expected. So when you start, we already have slots. We know that at Aqueduct, at Yonkers. We have Jake's 58 out on Long Island. But this would be old-fashioned, old-school game tables, you know, blackjack, all that stuff. So what is it that you found in terms of the competitiveness of these entities? And we're talking Wins, Bally's, MGM, Chickasaw Nation, you know, just all these different gambling entities getting into this. How is the competition? How fierce is it right now for these three downstate casino licenses? And I'll ask Annie first. Sure, sure. Yes, I think you laid it out really well just in terms of what's at stake and the revenue that a lot of these entities, these are teams of, as you mentioned, gaming operators like Wynn, like MGM, Bally is pairing up with real estate developers and, you know, around 10 potential bids so far. And I think we've heard people say that it's going to be unlike anything we've seen downstate before. And that's because of how much potential revenue is at stake, how much opportunity, opportunity there is to drive tourism and sort of the first, one of three of the first downstate casinos in New York. And we have people who are, you know, getting really out there with their plans, telling the communities exactly what they're going to do. We have bidders who are keeping their cards local to the best mm. as this application process sort of slowly rolls out. So I think in the coming months, we're going to see a lot of, you know, community pushback, a lot of community response. And as we get more details for these plans, get a better idea of what these casinos might actually look like. So, Justin, you wrote about just that community pushback. One of the community boards in Manhattan did a resolution saying, no way, we don't want this. There's a group in Garden City, a civic group that came out against it. I believe the village of Garden City all also came out against it for a proposal by, you know, right abutting them at the Nassau hub that Sands, Las Vegas Sands, wants to do. So, Justin, what are you hearing from community folks about a potential casino in their backyard? You can definitely see some groups that have some very real concerns about what State Senator Brad Hoyleman Segal describes as externalities. So, you know, the negative things associated with gaming, 
including problem gambling and, you know, extra traffic, all these things that are going to be brought to already very dense neighborhoods, especially in his district in Manhattan. The Broadway League also came out with a statement against the Times Square site. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be really important for the public outreach sort of efforts from these groups because they need to get approval from four out of the six board members for each of these community groups to even get in front of the facility board. So they're spending lots of money, you can already see on this. So Politico had a story last week that said that in the last 14 months, $7.2 million has already been spent on lobbying firms by these different groups vying for these licenses. And that's only really the tip of the iceberg because other groups such as PR consulting firms, firms, all those sorts of folks are not beholden to the same reporting requirements. So you can already see just how much effort each of these groups is putting into convincing some of these communities where we've seen pushback on similar projects before or big community altering projects. I know Annie wrote about, you think about the Amazon project in Long Island City that right. failed. Obviously, it's, this is not an apples-to-apples apples comparison, especially with all the tax breaks that were going to be given to that project as where these facilities will actually create tax revenue. But it does show you the sort of organizing power that the local communities have in those places and how important it will be for these groups to gain their approval, which between that and the zoning approval requirements are just the first bars that need to be passed to even get in front of the Gaming Facility Siting Commission. Yeah, you raise a very good point. That Politico story, $7.2 million just on lobbyists, but that's not counting strategists, consultants, PR, advertising, because you got to win over the community and you got to lobby the politicians to get this done. So you talked about the, I want to talk a little bit about the process. Justin, you talked a little bit about the community advisory committees. That's part of the process. So in New York City, those committees are made up of six people, the governor, the mayor, the local assembly person, the state senator, city council person and the borough president. And you need four out of six of those to approve it to go to the next step. In the suburbs, like in Westchester and Nassau County, there's one, there's a proposal I talked about in Nassau County. There's also one in Yonkers in Westchester. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you need three out of five that are on the committee. So it's the governor, the county executive, the assembly person, the state senator, and I guess it would be the local county legislator would be the fifth? Yes. Okay, so you need to win over all those people, which basically means they're not those folks are not going to go against their people. And we see people are talking to the civic groups, they're talking to the pastors, they're talking to youth empowerment groups, they're talking about jobs, they're really making it. But we saw, you know, back to Long Island, where I live in Nassau County, we see Nassau Community College, which abuts the site for this potential casino development is for it. But Hofstra University came out against it. So that's not going to be easy. We see what happens in the city as well. So so then after those get approval, then it needs to get the land use issues done. It needs to get the proper zoning done. And then when that happens, if and when that happens, it goes to the panel. Tell me about the panel. So from what I hear from my sources, this is actually a non-political panel that will decide where, where these downstate licenses could go. They're looking for three things. They're looking for community support. They're looking for lots of jobs and they're looking for lots of revenue for the state. What is this panel and do you think it can actually be apolitical, non-political in such a politically charged environment? Annie, that's for you. Sure, sure. I think it's a good question whether these can be non-political. Obviously, you mentioned, you know, 
sees just how many people are jumping into this game. And I just want to point out that that includes former lawmakers, people close to lawmakers. Frank Carone, former chief of staff to the mayor, is working with the Times Square bid. You have former city council member Robert Carnegie working on the Coney Island bid. So it's obviously politics isn't used in them. Yeah, former Governor David Patterson in the Sands bid. Right, right. It's it seems difficult to avoid, and so I think it's healthy to have a, a good sense of skepticism about about that panel. But I think in addition to what you laid out there, what they're looking for in terms of revenue, in terms of community support, and obviously the voting approvals, when it comes to the details of the plan, according to the RFA, what they're also looking for is, you know, in the nitty-gritty, just how much activity is going to be generated by this plan how they will benefit the local community and and businesses and mitigate, as Justin mentioned, any negative impacts, traffic, congestion. There's talk, obviously, about probably problem gambling. There needs to be a detailed workforce development plan. There needs to be a diversity framework within that plan for employment goals for minorities, women, veterans. So there are a lot of details that I think that's what I'm personally excited to see is is the details in the proposals once they get past those initial steps and and see just how competitive and, and close some of these details are going to be. So you talk about competition, and we're, ta- and we're talking about potentially 12 bids for three spots. But the conventional wisdom has it that the Yonkers Raceway Empire City Casino is pretty much going to get it, and Resorts World in Aqueduct Racetrack in Queens is going to get it because there's already gambling there. The community's already used to it. It makes sense. That's the conventional wisdom. So if that's true, then it really means 10 are vying for one. So you have, you know, Steve Cohn, owner of the Mets, for the Willits Point bid, potential bid. He's hired seven lobbying firms. I mean, there's so much money being spent. It's almost like they're not to use a pun, but they're they're taking a really big gamble and spending millions upon millions of dollars for the potential to make billions and billions of dollars. Do you get a sense that some of these 10 are not quite as real as the others? You know, I'm thinking about the one in Staten Island at the St. George Terminal. It's been talked about by the borough president, Vito Fisella. He's had a press conference in September talking about it, but you're not here. You know, that's not getting a lot of traction. You're not hearing a lot about it. Are there some that you think might fade away as the process goes on and you'll have a tighter race with fewer players spending more money? Well, I think that you'll actually see that happen pretty early in the process. Mm-hmm. And uh, as one person who was speaking on background from the Hotel Trades Commission kind of said to me was, you really see a lot of the wheat separated from the chaff after those first two hurdles, actually, because many of the players will likely fall out. And as this person pointed out, it's kind of crazy that so many different groups are spending all this money and they might not even get in front of the gaming facility at all or the facility siting committee at all. I also wanted to say something that came across in my reporting that you, you touched on, like the political tones of, of the board. I think that the state is going to extreme lengths to ensure that the people on the board are as apolitical as possible. Obviously, we know that in politics, in a process like this, it's impossible to completely scrub that. But, you know, the spokesperson I, I talked to from the gaming facility was adamant. Yeah. And, is bound to by the state to be so by the state law, and so it makes sense. About there are no front runners, you know. At the same time, there's no way that with so much attention being paid to this process, that there isn't going to be speculation and people with expertise weighing in. But from the gaming facilities board 
standpoint and the Gaming Commission standpoint, they are taking extreme measures to make sure that this is a transparent and apolitical process. So I, I did want to make that clear. But, but again, there's no way they're going to be able to stop with so much money involved and so many different interests, the sort of speculative nature of, of the conversation around this. And as you said, those two sites, the one in Queens and the MGM site, they seem to be the common front runners for exactly the reasons you state, right? So they have a very low bar in terms of mm-hmm. gaming community approval because they already have gaming in their facilities. All they're missing is the jobs, right? So it's only it's only upside for them to sell it to the community. You already have gaming here. Let us employ people now who will work in these new hotels and who will be on the table manning the games. So I think it's important, though, to be clear that the gaming facility, or I'm sorry, the, the gaming board and the gaming commission are trying very hard to keep this as as apolitical as possible. Justin, I have the same sense. I have the sense that you're correct because I have maybe, I don't know if we're talking to the same people, but it sounds to me like the upstate casino licenses, there were four awarded about 10, eight to 10 years ago. And people were surprised how apolitical it actually was. You know, it was expected that people connected to the governor would have a leg up and it just didn't happen that way. So there is hope that that potentially this could be completely, well, at least if not completely on the merits, a lot on the merits. And then when you look at the before I move on, Annie, anything you want to say about that? Because I want to start talking about some of the individual projects and what they're looking to do. Yeah, I think that's that's correct what you both said. And and you know, even on those two, you know, the Yonkers and the Aqueducts that people are referring to very commonly as front runners for the obvious reasons again that you both stated. The the state gaming authority has said, you know, speculation about those being front runners, this is a clean slate. There are no front runners and they are certainly appearing to go to, to great lengths to to make this sort of a, a fair process. Right. So when it gets to that board, you don't have to worry if you have a good relationship with the governor or if your assembly person's mad at you or, you know, you donated to this one. So there should be beholden. And well, I'm sure you guys will be watching to make sure that it is apolitical as possible. So when you look at the projects, they're actually fun to imagine. There are five just in Midtown alone. One of them is out in Hudson Yards. The related companies working with Wynn Resorts, which is really going to do a full-fledged mixed-use development, looking at doing, of course, the, the casino, a resort, but there'll also be a school, some below-market housing, some public space. You also see out in on the east side of Manhattan, I'm just looking here, there's one that would do green space right by the United Nations. It would have a below-ground casino and a hotel, also residential buildings with a Ferris wheel. They're really very specific in what they want to do and very different in what they want to do. Then you have the one on Saks Fifth Fifth Avenue, which is just going to be like a much smaller, easier development, taking three stories of the top of Saks Fifth Avenue and turning it into like a Monte Carlo, very glamorous, kind of grown-up casino that you see that James Bond would go to, for instance. So as you're reporting on this, do you find that you were kind of rooting for some more than the other? Like, yeah, this one makes much more sense than that one. You don't have to say which one, but sometimes do you find that you you might favor one more than another? Annie? I agree. It's incredibly exciting to imagine some of these and, I, and seeing the you know renderings that have come out, the Coney Island renderings have come out. There is some visualization of what the Times Square bid would look like. I can't say I'm rooting for one over another, 
But I am excited to get more and more detail on each of these proposals. I mean, the Midtown East one that you were just mentioning, there's talk about a museum dedicated to democracy being added to that. You know, is that next to a Ferris wheel? Is that next to the Below Ground Casino? It's, it's kind of, there's a lot of unknowns right now. And I'm excited to see what these details will look like, including in some of the ones outside Manhattan, too. Obviously, there's a lot of attention on the Midtown ones. They are also close together. But I'm excited to see some of the more some more details on, on Bronx or even if that island comes together. It, it's interesting to imagine. Justin, were you surprised by some of the partnerships? You know, let's look at the Times Square location. You have SL Green Realty Corporation, which, as you mentioned, Frank Carone, former, recently former chief of staff to Mayor Adams here in New York City, partnering with Caesars Entertainment, with Greenberg Torig, and with Rock Nation, which is owned by Jay-Z. So that's one entity. You have another entity for the Coney Island development, which is Thor Equities Group, the Chickasaw Nation, Saratoga Casino Holdings, and Legends Global Planning. You know, you have these big consortiums coming together. On Long Island, you have Las Vegas Sands and RXR Development. Really, some of very, very heavy hitters. Do you think in that way, you know, these leveraged partnerships can really be one could be more influential than the other, considering who's in the partnership? Justin? I'm not sure that that will have much influence. Obviously, from a public relations standpoint, having Jay-Z as one of your partners would likely be helpful, especially with trying to help people gain or help the different groups gain support amongst the community. But I'm not sure that will make much difference once they get in front of the location board. However, that PR part of it is really important. And it's no surprise to see all these big names, big players, global players coming together, given what's at stake in terms of the opportunity to make money. So, Right. It's worth the money to, to spend the money to get the money, potentially. So, Annie, there are yeah. – so as we mentioned, there are five potential bids that would be within walking distance of each other in Midtown Manhattan. Is there a sense that, well, because they're all so close together, they kind of cancel each other out? Do you mean like only one of them could sort of move, move farthest along? Yeah. Or one of them could move farther along or maybe all of them would just be gone, would just, you know, not succeed because, well, if we do Hudson Yards, then everyone else will get mad. So maybe we just don't do any of those and go somewhere else. We'll go to Coney Island or we'll go to Queens or right. whatever. I don't I don't know about that. I think that's an interesting question. Certainly, each of these in in Manhattan, even as you mentioned, look quite different. You mentioned the Saxon Avenue, which is just a few floors mm-hmm. on top of the building. And then you have the layout we talked about earlier, the sprawling sort of building on vacant space, whether it's Hudson Yards or over at Midtown East. So each of these bits in Manhattan, they're not, they don't seem at this point interchangeable, but, but, you know, you do have three community boards in Manhattan now have voted on proposals that oppose either a casino in their area or a specific and Yards or another casino. So there does seem to be some consensus, at least, among some of the community, these nearby communities in the same Midtown area, that there is pushback. Obviously, some lawmakers are going to have a voice on multiple boards, multiple of these community advisory committees, because of how close they are. Certainly, Mark Levine is going to be busy this year. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, it, I don't know if they cancel each other out, but a successful bit in Manhattan would have to make a really convincing and I would assume distinct argument to stand out above the others. 
One that hasn't gotten a lot of attention is the one at Hotel Pennsylvania, that storied hotel that is now actually getting demolished as we speak, right across from Penn Station, and that's Vornado. And as we know, Vornado, it seems to be a little precarious, the whole plan for all of those office buildings around Penn Station. We don't know what's exactly what's going to happen there. Do you see that one particularly as one that could fall away pretty quickly because of the precariousness of all of that project? Vernado is one of the ones that has not been incredibly outspoken so far. Yeah, yeah they've been quiet. Um, I think as of as of even like mid February, they had not made at least a public decision on whether it will apply for a casino license. So some of those ones, I do wonder, you know, at what point the ones that are being a bit more shy and a bit less forthcoming about what exactly they have planned. If those are will fall away, certainly the other sort of dynamics that you mentioned with Renato and, and that area around Penn Station anyways could come into play. But it, it, it does seem kind of early to, to speculate about which will fall away. Yeah. You know, I was looking about, you know, there are a lot of folks who don't want a casino for obvious reasons. They think it brings prostitution and drugs and other bad things to their communities. You know, that's one of the reasons why Hofstra University was against it. They don't want their students necessarily going and gambling all the time. They don't know if it would be good for recruiting students to come. But it seems like the research on the effects of gambling is kind of a mixed bag. I think you reported, Justin, that there are cases where when a casino first, a legal casino first comes to a community, People, maybe they overgamble, they overdo it. But then once they get used to it, they just get it becomes part of the community. It's not that big of a deal and people don't really abuse it as much. On the grassroots, talking to people in communities, what is the biggest fear that you're hearing from people, Justin? To be clear, there are thousands of reports on gambling done and a variety of different results. But the one you're talking about, it's the something adaptive effect. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. As you described, some research has shown that as different gaming facilities move into a community, there's an initial shock where people take the new opportunity, take the novelty of gaming being right in front of them, very available, and run into gambling problems. But then what that research found was that over time, people kind of learned the lessons of problem gambling. Mm -hmm. And unlike other addictions, it was easier to kind of get away from that. However, there are also dozens of studies done that do show the effects of a new casino and a new gaming opportunity moving into an area and the increase in problem gambling. So I, I don't want to discount those either. So this, as you say, this is what people, and I'll tell you, so I was a reporter at the Niagara Gazette for a number of years, mm-hmm. and we would often report on issues of problem gambling and crime and, and things around the casino up in Niagara Falls. To be clear, there was a lot of good done in the community as well, a lot of money coming in that wouldn't have otherwise not been there for things like buying new plowing equipment and paving roads. So this is like the age-old weighing of good versus bad that goes on whenever gaming comes into a community. Yeah, yeah, gambling is basically people saying, here, government, take my money, please. (laughs) Right, and then a portion of that being put back into the communities, which is the part that, you know, all the proponents of these projects always want to talk about. Yeah. So, you know what surprised me, Justin and Annie, was there was a plan about six years ago to do slots in an old empty Fortunoff store at, right in the middle of Manhattan, actually not very far from, from the Sands proposal where that's going to go. And the outcry was deafening. You had Republican and Democrat elected officials. You had moms with strollers with signs, no to the casino, the mayors. Everyone came out against it. And it killed it. It was a development. It was a plan. It didn't and it it just didn't happen. And 
I don't know if people are more open-minded now or if it was just that Sands, for instance, you know, they bought up every consultant. They, they're talking to everybody in the communities. They're working with all the elected officials. You know, they really did their homework. Maybe they learned from this past example. Or maybe it's something that's just changed in the society. I'm not sure what it is, but it's really interesting to see that stark difference between these two things. And this one's much bigger a plan than the Fortunoff thing was. So I have a question for you, Annie. What's next? What is next in the process? And when do you think we will know who will get these licenses? How long will this take? That's a very good question. I think right now, my understanding from from the state is that once the RFA was issued at the beginning of the year... And what does RFA stand for? Request for applications. Right. So one sort of the details of, of what bidders would, would have to submit and, and put together for their plans were, uh, were released and, and the sort of process was laid out. They had about a month to submit an initial set of questions back to the state about, about the process. And the last time I checked in, the gaming locations board is reviewing those questions. And once those questions are answered, 30 days from then, another set of questions will be due. We have a couple months now where the bidders and the state board are going to have an opportunity to sort of answer questions and and sort of nail down the specifics of what this request for applications is asking for. And then some months down the line, again, it's not a specific date. It's sort of laid out as a month from here, a month from then in this process. But some months down the line, the community advisory committee process will begin, I believe, later this year. Mm-hmm. And, and that is when I think we'll see more details of what these plans look like. We'll see who is going to be on these committees. And I think that is when I expect to be more fierce debate and community discussion and all of the sort of excitement that it is. Yeah, that's a know, good point. People people might not really be even that aware of it yet. So as the process takes on. So this could potentially take a couple of years before we get any answers, right? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think what's been cited by the state is at the earliest late 2023, but I don't know if that's realistic yeah. based on the timeline that they've laid out. So I think perhaps a more conservative timeline is, is probably, you know, wise to look at. Well, we will all be watching. Annie McDonough and Justin Sandell, thank you so much. And thanks to City and State for covering this. This is good stuff. And when things heat up, maybe we'll have you back on. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Listeners, if you like what you're hearing on Cut to the Chase, please subscribe and share and check out my radio show, also called Cut to the Chase, at 4 p.m. on Talk Radio WABC. 